0: The jack of all trades, master of none. It was very difficult. And then from that, I became the last dinosaur staffing officer ever that used to have to do things with a pencil and paper in the morning. And I got in trouble for that, too, because I signed off one of my emails as Captain Happy. (laughs) As soon as that goes out, Graham comes marching in here. I got to talk to you, Captain. What exactly are you doing here? You're an officer. I said, Jim, man, I'm just trying to make light of a bad (laughs) situation here, you know.
1: Captain unhappy. Yeah, it was uh, staffing. today's episode, we get to talk to a retired senior captain from Chesterfield County, Captain Michael Brigatti. Michael and I got to know each other a good bit working at Station 14 on Jeff Davis Highway in the Pike, and a lot of our stories today circle around what happened in those days as well as a lot of the characters we got to work with and learn from over the years. After his retirement, Mike became a fiction writer, which uh... It's pretty interesting to hear as well so uh, stay tuned for that and uh, enjoy this episode of the firehouse logbook podcast with mike brigotti so uh i guess let's start off it, you know, i'm kind of interested in movie quotes and being a guy from new york uh, what's a dazzling young urbanite like you doing <laughs> in a rustic setting like this so uh
0: i remember uh, when i first moved down here a million years ago after the dinosaurs left the earth People would tell me, "How could you stand living in the Bronx?" I said, "Well, you know, my parents weren't in Honolulu, so I ended up uh, on East One Hundred and Eighty First Street. So that's where I got my start and lived there till I was in my teens before moving to Asbury Park, New Jersey. Still up north. Yes, but I used to go get to see uh, Bruce Springsteen very cheaply back then.
1: It was before Bruce St- Springsteen was Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, he was just
0: he was just a guy. A just boy. some guy in a bar playing guitar. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And I went off to college in Maine, and in between uh, donating a couple of teeth and drinking beer, I even managed to get a couple of
1: degrees. So a couple of teeth to hockey, I <laughs> yeah, thought. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they play a little hockey up there. So what did, you go to, what did you go to college for?
0: Well, I actually went off to be a marine biologist. But during the course of, of events, I took courses in psychology. And every time I'd read something, I'd say, oh my God, this is talking to me. Oh my God, this is my family. <laughs> Next thing I know, I was immersed in it, and it really, it opened my eyes and changed the course of my existence. I still like the water, I have the house at the beach, I became a scuba diver and I was on a rescue, uh, water rescue team, but yeah, I changed disciplines, took, uh, got a degree in psych and then followed it up with one in sociology.
1: Did you, you know, after college, did you pursue that line of work?
0: I did. I became what Ken Tanner and Vaughn Culbreth would call a damn Yankee, the ones that came down here and stayed. stayed. Because of employment, I started doing counseling work for the Department of Corrections. In Virginia? Yes, uh, Petersburg area. And if if there's a dirtier job, I'm sure there are, but that was that's a tough line of work. I was young, and it wasn't for me, and I got out. And through happenstance of fate, I ran into Wayne Tunstall in the apartment complex I lived at, and he told me about this job. Hey, you know, come join the fire department. You can keep your real job <laughs> and work a couple of days for the fire department. I said, well, okay. Took the test. I got ushered in, and uh, here I am now talking to you. Oh my God! Too many years later. A few years later. Yeah. What, what
1: year was that? You came to. You ran into Wayne Tunstall and.
0: It was around 1979 or 80, and uh, I took the test. I did well enough, and I got a call up the following year and said, well, you know, we have an opening. Would you like it? And I, I wasn't a true firefighter in the sense that it boiled in my blood like a lot of you guys. But it was a good career opportunity, and I said, sure. And that's, that's how I got started. And then, of course, me and Jerry Pruden, who came on with me, we were so good we had to go through two drill squads. <laughs> <laughs> we finished up one, and they made us go through a second one. But
1: well, you're, Oh, yeah, there's probably a story behind that. How oh. did that happen? Well, I we, didn't know Jerry went to two recruits. Was oh, always, yes. Okay, I got another line of questioning yeah, for him. Yeah, you on down.
0: him for that. But, uh, yeah, we came in halfway through 11 uh, just because of the openings at the time. And they made us go through number twelve, but we were proud because we had real shields. We didn't have to wear probes. Oh, shields. you weren't pro.
1: You weren't on probation. Yeah, you had his round.
0: two, and I had uh, four. The old Bon Air station.
1: Yeah. So you came in in the middle of one school, That's graduated, good. went to the station apparently.
0: Uh, yes, for a while up in Bon Air,
1: and then went back to recruit school to get the first half or the rest of the. They the made. Uh, I guess I was so good at this. They made me stay for all of it. What a stellar performer you were! <laughs> yeah, let's keep. Let's keep him here. He's doing so well. Yeah. <laughs> Coming out of, so that was 80-ish, mm-hmm. where you, you mentioned you, were, you went to four, you went to Air Because okay. I think during my whole career, when you were in the station, you were in the south end, 12, 14.
0: Yeah, I didn't move around as much as a lot of guys, but I went from four, and then after drill school, if you did well, you got to select where you wanted to go. I chose 14 when it opened, when 14 and 9 opened together, and I went there. Fresh out of school, I took the promotional exam to become sergeant. I, maybe foolishly, they promoted me, but I went down to Ettrick, was a sergeant, and worked down there for a while, and eventually I ended up uh, being captain at 12, and opportunity presented itself to come back to Dutch Gap as the captain, and I jumped on it.
1: So, just for the listeners, as sergeant back, I guess, until what, maybe 90-ish?
0: Somewhere around, that's close enough.
1: There were... Sergeants were the company officers, the officers in charge, and and ultimately they changed that around, and everybody who was a sergeant got to be a lieutenant. Everybody who was a lieutenant went to captain, and there were some other rank structure structural changes back at that time, so. I think
0: they were trying to bring it in line with uh, the main thrust of the fire service. Yeah, the rest, everybody else. Yeah, they were getting away from the sergeants. Yeah.
1: So what uh, what were some of the days in the fire station like back in the 80s when you first came on what was uh, what was life like for you
0: it was like the wild west and I remember telling uh, Pam my wife at the time after I got hired it was so crazy and again I had no history in emergency services that at the end of the day the 24-hour shift I'd go back to Pam and say I wonder if I get my old job back I said this is nothing <laughs> like I thought the way it is these people are crazy <laughs> so, leave it to say. I mean, the pranks that went on, the calls you ran, it was all new to me. And depending on back then who you had as an officer, made a big difference to your start in the fire service.
1: Were were yours positive influences or kind of the other side of the? That's point?
0: a unique way to put it. I, I will not down on them because God knows I made my share of mistakes. But some guys were more imbued in training and bringing along a young guy. I was not blessed with that. And I was in my own way because I had, again, no history in the fire service. I didn't know what to expect, what to do. So that, that made it difficult. And I uh, learned a lesson that you needed to align yourself with someone who was good and not someone who was popular. And that was one of the things early on in the fire department. There was a lot of people who were popular, well-known, funny, yet, there were others who were quiet, who went about doing their job. And those are the ones I tried to align myself with as early on as a firefighter anyway.
1: Yeah, i I, I harken back to Max Whitlock was kind of the guy on my shift when I was a rookie. And he was that quiet, but knew his job inside and out and was willing to download that. Yeah, I think Max came from Henrico, I think. Yeah, he yep. started Henrico and came to Chesterfield. So uh, how tough was it you talk about fire service cultures. Um, I'm gonna get I'm gonna make a leap here and leap, guess. Leap away. There was a bit of a culture change from the Bronx, New York, New York, to Central Virginia to what is not exactly <laughs> suburban or urban areas in the in the Central Virginia region. Well, you see
0: region. your leap. You're you're falling in a big chasm here because <laughs> I, I'm from the south I used to tell you I'm from the south Bronx. south Bronx so it was easy for me to make that transition from a land with no trees in fact until I was 13 I thought a tree was a picture in a book <laughs> and then when I came down here it was different Chesterfield had that 78,000 people in the entire county you could practically sleep on route 10 when we got our first apartment in Chester and it was a true culture shock for me. I'd I lived my whole life in the urban center in in New York, so it was very different. And now look at it now, it's so yeah. we're so urbanized now. It's almost time to leave, <laughs> go further south yeah, somewhere. I don't know.
1: What, what about coming to to a department like that? Because that was '80s. That was kind of a, a, a kind of a different. Um, culture, then I think there was a, probably another guy from up up in the New York way Jim Graham was probably on the job when you came down there 's yes. another yeah Jim another gentleman from New york but yep. uh so and, and, and in i got a note here it says some something about coming from up north and I mean way up north like New York. Because we had a bunch of folks from Pennsylvania who came down I think in kind invasion, of another way, yes. another way uh, later mm-hmm. on in the late eighties but uh what kind of differences were you seeing just from cultural and upbringing? And,
0: it's an interesting point. Uh, I can only speak from my own experience. I think it was a, at times a collision between two different dynamics. You had the, in essence, the good old boys system of people who grew up together or knew the Southern culture. And then you had this influx of foreigners. Uh, Yankees, for myself and, and a few others, You know, had some measure of college behind them. I, I knew nothing about volunteer element, and there was quite a dynamic in a combination system placating the volunteers and political nuances that I was unaware of. And uh, frankly, I, I guess I didn't put enough time. I was not in favor of, and so that caused the clash between myself, anyway, and maybe a couple others, with some of my uh, superior officers. <laughs>
1: Uh, so what where did your career take you from then? You got promoted to sergeant did you stay where'd you stay then where'd you go?
0: Well, from twelve, then I spent a brief time at Station ten when seven first opened, and you were sergeant by day at seven, firefighter by night at ten and then again uh, that's they promoted the bunch of us to lieutenant. I went to Ettrick, was there for a while, as you said, they upgraded they became the captain there with. The likes of Vaughn Culberth, Bruce Simmons, Dave Faison, my God, what a shift! Uh, what a time. Several that names was.
1: that have already been mentioned in oh. episodes previously from with Chesterfield people,
0: but they were all really, really good firefighters. I mean, these were the real deal. So I considered as much as I had problems with them officiating or manipulating them or uh, supervising for running calls, they, they were, were the real deal. deal.
1: Who were the? Who were the? Uh, folks in the department at the time that you kind of that really were the the influences that kind of gave you the path forward or taught you the lessons of how to how to do the job how to be a supervisor how to work on the fire ground any of those characters the
0: first one that comes to mind will be jim graham he and i did get along very well uh he was sent to four different positions throughout the department operations training and elsewise whenever he had an opportunity he would tell me to put in for it So I would, not and I learned as much from Jim as I did a lot of guys. But when I did take the only opportunity, I had to go to battalion chief, and they asked me, name people who you, like you're asking me now, who would you align yourself with? Who did you look up? Who did you respect? I named Tommy Cromer and Shelly Porter. And they said, those are firefighters. I said, you didn't ask me about officers. You asked me about people I respected and did their job well. So it was guys like that. The rank and file, there was a lot to be learned from that. I, I think frequently when we move up in rank, anybody, you have a tendency to forget where you came from. And those guys always grounded me why we were doing the job. I, I still think well of them, and respect them still.
1: Hey, you, you, that's an interesting point because you brought up earlier about that the popular versus the quiet. Yes. And Tommy and Shelley were both, not not always quiet, but certainly kind of those, the, they looked like the, the ducks on the water where they didn't look like they were doing much, but they were constantly working and doing the job right.
0: When I got to Station 14, uh, uh, they joked and said, well, a monkey could run this place. And I said, well, I was the happiest ape on the planet then. <laughs> I mean, I had guys like Tanner, Crosby, Bobby Knight, Jerry Pruden. Uh, it just went on as Scott Heckler, I mean, this place was automatic and you were there for a while you on a different shift, but we'd run several calls together. And I always measured my success there as a group success, not so much about running calls. There was a lot of good guys throughout the county, but station 14, we outran everyone. But the biggest thing I always remembered, and I'll bring it up now, is something unusual. It was the first place I saw where a shift finished their day's work. If there was time left, they started the next shifts. Geez, back then you could hardly get some groups to do their own work, and we had a collective entity that was doing each other's, and it was a very tight group. And in all my years at fourteen, I don't think anyone ever put in for a transfer out, and several people tried to get in. Oh, it wasn't on on me. The, the draw was the calls and the good officers. But being part of that, I I took a lot of pride in that.
1: And it, you know that. It was a crowd. I mean, it was seven or eight people on a shift. You throw in the med flight crews if they were there. Yes, sir. We had that. The battalion chief, if he was battalion chief, came in back. After, I guess after med flight went back to the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of different personalities. But uh, there was also a, some. Um, you, you mentioned pranks, and I'll 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 mention one that sticks Please in do. my head. <laughs> that you were right in the middle of. It was like eight o five at night, and that might be the trigger that makes you remember this. <laughs> Paul Murray answers the phone Uh, and it's uh, Floyd Taylor, who was coming into work the next day, had fallen (laughs) asleep after dinner, woke up at 8.05, calls the fire station and just happens to be one of his shift mates who was working over, Paul Paul Murray, Murray, answers the phone and Floyd says, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Paul, I'm late, hold on, let me let you talk to Brigatti (laughs) and then Mike Brigatti picks up the phone.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, and we played him like a fish, poor or Floyd. Yeah, Floyd. He didn't know what to do, but, of course, he was not late, but.
1: 12 we, hours early.
0: Yeah. That's a, well, he wasn't. I told him. I said, after it was over, I said, well, you're actually early for work.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think when you dropped the dime on him, he was like, look, look Floyd, just roll over, go back to sleep, and sleep for about <laughs> 10 more hours, and then come on in in the morning when it's time to go to work. So what, what? what are you talking about?
0: Well, that was, those things like that built teamwork. I don't know what it's like. I've been out of uh, Chesterfield for 17 years now and with the change in the culture of America, let alone the fire service. I don't know if you could do those things. And of course, I'll speak generally, from my generation, but I think things like that helped weave a fabric of brotherhood. And I don't know if that's still there. I hear that sometimes it's missing in action, so to speak. But pranking one another in a fair way, heck, man, it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I was a victim of a few of those yes you were bambi <laughs> yeah the, the, yeah we'll talk about that one too <laughs> bambi killer bambi killer uh so what about uh you know yeah, i mean we worked a lot together at 14 and um I'll, I'll tell one more 14 story when when i was on the i was on the engine i was assigned to the engine but cross-trained on the truck every few days go go over and till tommy cromer or, some, or shelley or somebody hanging on the back and Teaching me how to drive the back end of the ladder truck it was still one of the coolest jobs I ever did. Got that right. Um, so we go out on road. By this time, I had I, I, the training wheels had semi come off, and I was in the tiller box by myself. But we'd go out and cruise up Woods Edge Road, or go up Pike and do the interstate. Do some rough th- and mill all those oh, good yeah. roads. Yeah, and, uh, we're coming down Jeff Davis, and this is way before intercoms. Or, or way before good intercoms, I should say. And all of a sudden, I look up and the lights on the cab and the lights back near me are coming on, and the siren starts blowing. And I'm yelling into the intercom, "Hey, hey, are we going on a call? What, what's going on?" And thinking, "Is it a fire? Is it an EMS? What? Where are we going? Go somewhere." And all I we stop, and I look at you, step out of the cab of the truck, and look back at me, and go, "Oh, I guess you're turned loose now, aren't you?" <laughs> I think you and them had forgot that I was in the back, that the rookie driver was in the back of the truck.
0: You must have done a fine job, but we could turn about being fair play. (laughs) Uh, When I got checked out to be a paramedic, I was just average (laughs) paramedic at best. And everyone has their initial story in EMS or as a paramedic and you were my babysitter, my mentor. And we had a call right off the bat, which I'll never forget and talk about baptism of fire, even though it was EMS. I'm sure you remember the call, too. It was Was that the Bermuda Run? Yes, it was, that uh, young black uh, male, Travis, I'll only use his first name, who uh, was O-Dark Hundred, and we got sent there for an assault. We got to the second floor on the concrete steps. I think one of the cops, I think it was old Paul Blocker, if I remember right, and there, in a massive pool of blood, was this huge teenager literally with a 10 12 inch butcher knife laying next to him and some crystals of what probably was cracked back then I don't know so I looked at you you looked at the cops and I shrugged my shoulders like what and you said just we're out of here and back then we had to step in this this goo goo you know dark blood and we hauled him out of there and and he get, was still alive
1: we kept still. him alive
0: all the way to the er i guess that was because of all the drugs he had on board and I, i'm sure that you started the line i failed and couldn't do it and i ended up on the uh, ambu bag the big old pillow puffing down his throat yeah. which was turned out being interesting because back then we got to uh mcv he was still alive and back then you were still part of the team so i went in there and i'm squeezing the ambu bag, and they're working away, starting lines. I don't know how many units of blood and such they put through there. and They cracked his chest. I'd never seen that when they did. It was like literally a pail of blood thrown on the floor. I was thought I was pretty cool under fire, like any of us, and I just stopped. (laughs) And the ER doc, he didn't get excited, just elbowed me, he said, keep bagging, and I went back to doing it. I remember that. And when it was all over, he said, you want to see the trauma and i said well yeah and he reached up into the guy's heart and he sticks his finger through the heart muscle
1: where the hole yes where the, the hole, hole was and, and i never knife.
0: forgot it and the call as much as it was way over my head also made me realize you don't know what to expect and you do have to be ready for anything especially on the
1: pike yeah that was it was always cool going to it was after i'd been on the helicopter so i kind of knew the the i still knew a lot of the people on the docs and the nurses in the ER, and i I think when we walked in, I said, don't let go of that bag. You keep bagging. I, 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 I just stepped back and I watched. I had a death grip on that thing, let me tell <laughs> you. Because I said, Mike's getting ready to get an education here. Watch this and it just was. see what happens in the aftermath. So. Well,
0: you got stuck babysitting me, and I'm grateful for it because now after we've climbed Mount Rainier, we have been uh, paddling <laughs> in the uh, Boundary Canoe Waters, and we've run several calls, and now we're podcasting.
1: That's it, man. Yeah, How we have evolved. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, not only that, you're a writer, so we'll get into that for sure. Scary, author. huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, um, I always keep thinking about those those first calls that uh, medics and ALS providers ride, and I tell a J.P. Jones story. Um, I had gone, I had taken something like back to logistics, or gone to, up to the courthouse for something in the utility, and and it was J.P. had just been cut loose as an ALS provider. You know, he'd been through class and just got his walking papers and he was the ALS provider on the engine and they catch a cardiac arrest somewhere with Bensley and I'm coming back and I'm like, Yeah, I I'll stop by. I'll I'll do a drive by and <laughs> see if he needs any help, see how he's doing and uh all I remember is he's up in the back of the ambulance by this point and I open the doors and here's JP with the, the mask with the face shield on and it's fogged up and you can't see his face. And it looked like an ALS kit exploded, and there is <laughs> stuff everywhere. And all I heard him say was,
0: get up in here! <laughs> <laughs> well, guys <So. laughs> like you and Crosby, you know, they were like saviors to us new guys. You know, <laughs> been around the block many times, or Eddie Ferguson. There was so many good ALS providers. But I named the ones I named because I worked with them at 14. But we saw you guys, it was like, thank God the cavalry's here, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Well, a little bit more about your career. I mean, you were uh, – I'll say your reputation I don't know if it's that's an accurate phrase for it, but uh you were one that would um let's say toe your put your toes right on the edge of the precipice with uh the bosses and administration and uh I don't know if that perhaps helped or hurt your career, but uh I think as the outside observer, I was watching that and could kind of see it. I know I don't want to do it Mike just because yeah. <laughs> he got called some artillery artillery in on himself there.
0: How well, yeah, I I had a large oral orifice, I and I. Paul Shorter once told me he says, you know, you're right a lot of the times, but you don't know when to shut up. <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom to that. You have to look back in the rearview mirror of life and realize that, that was so. I thought there were a lot of changes with the new way of doing business, and I really did speak out of turn a lot of time. But yeah, I, I took a lot of artillery fire, but even uh, Bob Ean's I went and thanked him when I left the job because Chief Eanes and I had many a battle and everybody knew about it. But without him hiring me, I could not have stayed in Virginia. I could not have done what I've done. And even writing uh, the first novel, Fire Thieves. that's all because Eanes gave me the chance. And he said, even then, he said, well, I never had to worry where you were coming from. And there was a lot to be said for that. And I guess that was his way of forgiving me.
1: (laughs) Was that was that about the time you left? Was that uh, That kind of your day? I left your exit interview. Yes,
0: yes. I stopped off and saw him. He was working at a different job for the county. Yeah, he left chief job. Uh But yeah, Mm -hmm. and now he has ended up. uh, He and I are friendly. Uh, uh, I've had lunch with him. We joked that if people, the old people, knew that he and I are friendly, (laughs) I said there would be heart attacks all (laughs) over Chesterfield (laughs) County. They're they're in the same room. Oh my gosh! What who's
1: who's gonna come walking out? Because yeah, not both of them will. But uh, yeah,
0: yeah, Ian's was the right man for the job back then, and there was just a lot of us new guys with new ideas, and that's really all it was. It wasn't really as personal as I thought it was. It was a collision, much like it will happen in this fire department now. Loy Center has new people, and a new the culture is here. That's the wheel turns. And yeah. That's just the way it is.
1: Just different different times different cultures different that's changes
0: right and they will they will braid up against one another there will be cultural clashes and that's from that though that's how change evolves and if you're fair-minded uh, change usually is for the good more than it's for the bad that's how I like to look at
1: it you also uh pulled a stint as the uh AO the administrative officer I did was that when uh, the AOs were doing staffing at the time
0: on top of everything else, I think the AO job might have been as difficult as any because you were the fulcrum between the guys below and the people above, and you had to, uh, the jack of all trades, master of none. It was very difficult, and then from that, I became the last dinosaur staffing officer ever that used to have to do things with a pencil and paper in the morning, and I got in trouble for that too because I signed off one of my emails as Captain Happy. <laughs> As soon as that goes out, Graham comes marching in here. I got to talk to you, Captain. What exactly are you doing here? You're an officer. I said, Jim, man, I'm just trying to make light of a bad situation here, you know. Captain unhappy. Yeah, it was a staffing.
1: So, yeah, for the casual listener who doesn't know what the AO is, it was um, I think you were senior captain. senior captain on A Yep. You had battalion chiefs who mm-hmm. were – we were three or four at the time. We had there, three. Were three,
0: I had, there were three battalions, A, B, and C. And and there was three AOs. But you worked over so much, I've uh,
1: and you, you, the AO, I have AO'd all of them. As the AO, you would be the first one pulled up to battalion right. to cover.
0: So, yeah, so you. it was what a lot of departments would call system battalion chief. Yeah. So we did that a lot. and I guess one of the bigger calls. I ended up taking over the call when Brad McNear was was killed. Oh, wow. And I, was the, I did not know that. Yep, I was the officer in charge of that. Uh, Scott had... Cooper was in charge, and he knew uh, young McNair, and I did not, and he was caught up in the moment. So when I say I ran the call, in truth, all it was was getting a person I did not know in a fire truck out of a wrecked fire truck, because obviously they brought in the big guns, the lawyers, the county attorney, the administrator, and I sat in with that group, but I was not in charge of that.
1: So, for those of you who don't know, Brad McNear was a uh, volunteer firefighter in Bon Air, uh, involved in a vehicle accident and one of the uh, Bon Air units. Rolled over, he uh, died in that accident. Mm-hmm. But uh, so tell me a little bit b- bit more about that. Obviously, Scott Cooper was a battalion chief at the time, and that was his battalion. I'm sure, so he knew a lot of the people. Yes, uh, did was that something he used? To, he saw you come up, and he said, "Take this," or did you see something in him, and you you stepped up and took it?
0: Scott was a Bon Air guy most of his career. That's where he was battalion chief. He knew McNary, knew the family. I was an AO. I was all over the place. And uh, in part, I guess, it's just from reading the scene, as they say. And, you know, I had done some counseling in the Department of Corrections, and I think Scott and I both decided it might be best if someone not attached ran the nuts and bolts of it, which is why I say I took over. To me, it was a wrecked truck because I didn't know the uh, Brad McNair never saw him to me it was uh, obviously a fireman but I was able to stay ba- step back a bit and just get uh, several of the guys you know Russell Easter in particular was very helpful we we got him out but he it was a terrible injury uh, and yeah he he did not make it you mm. could tell right away that he was gonna
1: leave this life mm. Yep, another uh, it was you talk about you know big incidents that happened in the department um, Maybe we'll we'll dig into that one one day a little bit more in depth about you know lessons learned because I know coming out of that there was um, a lot of after action reports. How could there and, not be? Yes. And uh, what do we do different? And you know, Brad's name is on a wall up at Emmitsburg, and every time I was up there, I always stopped by and pay respects. And uh, he's. Picture still hangs in administration. Or did the, did the last time I was in there? So. Yeah, he was
0: only what twenty years old. Yeah, young man had to. Yeah, he was contemplating joining uh, the paid side, mm-hmm. but obviously never got the chance. Yeah. And that's that's the danger. Really, I used to tell the guys at fourteen in particular, in ninety five, that one of the more boring jobs, but more important was you, back then you'd sent someone behind the wreck to make sure traffic was moving around because uh, it's not as regulated as it is now and I'd say if you turn around I said you're going to hear it because that's where the danger was you never knew when the worst of things could occur and that's what happened to him he was just driving to a call
1: yep. uh, where else did you go what uh, I mean I think you did some time in training too didn't you did you do a training division stint? I
0: did again that was under uh, Jim's auspices and He invited me up there and, you know, everybody knows it's about who you're surrounded with. All the cliches apply. I'm a man who believes in cliches and great quotes of life. The more you align yourself with them, the wisdom of the ages, the better off you are. You know, the wise man knows he's ignorant. So I was surrounded by really good guys and Harry Shaw comes to mind right away. Everybody knew Harry. Harry was blue collar up and down the line and we had evolutions at the time, and Jim gave me free reign to have evolutions. But instead of just going up there and being timed on the clock, we developed them into a scenario where you had to perform. And the the guys were very kind to me. It was very humbling that they really enjoyed the scenarios that Harry and I and I'd help from Jerry and Willie Rice, uh, a lot of guys. And that that I loved my time in training. It it really opened me up to the behind-the-scenes of what it takes to be prepared. It also helped me. I already had been writing for a while, but in training then I started writing. for. I wrote for Skin Diver magazine, Fire Rescue, Firehouse. So that was in part it helped me pursue writing too. I mean, it, training was great.
1: So you uh, that training scenario you were talking about, is that the, was that when, we, when they developed kind of that standard engine company evolutions or was that taking those evolutions and applying them to a – Scenario That is
0: correct. They were already
1: tricks. The tricks, yeah.
0: Were already in place. Which
1: were, you You got to do, leave these tools in this location with this much hose, with this kind of action in this amount of time. Yeah. The trick. Yep. Yeah. So you took that and put it into some more practical. Yeah, impetus. where
0: you'd have to go in and there would be a, a body, there would be fire. We had one with a structural collapse where you had to pull a guy out and Harry built these great props and, and people really liked it rather than go there and, you know, because People cheated. Uh, the discharges were like barely right, right. threaded on. It's not,
1: it's not cheating. It's gaining a tactical advantage. <laughs> well,
0: that's why you moved up and I didn't, okay? <laughs> there you go. But uh, yeah, we advanced it. So it became more reality-based. And the guys responded to it. They didn't mind going to training. And one of the things I'd I like to think I changed also was back in the day, another great phrase, you weren't supposed to speak about what, your evolutions are gonna be. And I used to go and tell everybody, you go back and tell everybody exactly what you did today. My thing was, then they would go and, oh my god, they'd actually prepare and train for it. I didn't like the secrets. And I think people responded to that too because the foolishness or the being watched under the magnifying glass was taken away. And, and people really liked it and it showed.
1: So it was, it was more of a um, train to a scenario let's tweak the skill set to be better at that scenario versus the haha gotcha you're not you didn't do this right yeah and There's that's a, and not that's, the gotcha
0: and that's the part of the stuff that used to get me in trouble i'd be the first one to bitch and moan about the gotchas
1: i i thought it was foolish you didn't tell anybody that did you you're the first <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you always told it like it was yeah 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 so uh, you mentioned uh you mentioned writing what uh I guess was it, you started doing some writing for, uh, how did you get into doing those articles for those magazines, those professional journals as it were? I guess, uh,
0: well, people in training, I know Willie Rice, a lot of guys, that's what they did just on the periphery of their expertise. And I was not as proficient as Willie was in tech rescue or I don't know, maybe Ben Gary was in diving. But I had an affinity for the written word and I could communicate and that partly came from training. And it was almost like a hobby, it was fun. I liked doing it and it actually felt like hey, you were doing something good. That was one thing I learned about the fire service that I always spoke well. I'd mentioned not being, it boiling in my blood. But I look back now, in firefighting, EMS delivery, that's one of the few jobs I've ever known where no matter what you're doing, giving directions, getting a dog stuck out of a pipe, uh, delivering a baby, uh, fires, Whatever you do in the course of the day, you're helping people, and people appreciated it. And that had a major effect on my life, to feel like, uh, to be able to perform something that people needed, and what you did for others came back and rewarded you, and I really liked that. So I started writing, it was getting out to people, and one thing led to another. I was getting near the end of my career, and I know you'll find this is a shock too, but I never never really prospered working for others, so. (laughs) So I found something that I could do on my own, and I still do it.
1: Yeah, but I think the difference now is, is unless you're unless you're doing something that I don't know about in the skin diver and firehouse, those were all kind mm-hmm. of technical. Yes. F- fiction. This is how we do things. These are recommended practices. This is how we develop this training program. Now you're making up stuff. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. How. So how did you make that transition from you know <laughs> writing in technical manuals and to doing novels and works of fiction?
0: I don't really have a grip, a a pat answer, but I had retired, and my son Matthew was living with me in, uh, in Matoica, and I was, I had put in for, and I was accepted at a writing school out up in Vermont. And uh, in the curriculum, they were just teaching how to write about character development and plot development, this, that, and the other thing. And it, it, because it wasn't, patent you had to think about stuff that I had an affinity for that you know let my brain go where it wanted to go and my studies with people and the people we had worked with and it all just seemed to fill a void or make sense to me and I found by creating scenarios and situations which even though it was fiction was based a lot of factual the first book I wrote is based a lot on reality which is what a lot of writers a lot better than myself do but I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I just followed the masters and tried to uh, do what they did. But creating something, much like this podcast, you get to create something. And I look at your eyeballs, something people can't see, and I know that you really like it because it fits. It just works.
1: Well, it's, the, it's the stories. and I mean, It like, is the um, stories.
0: Everybody has a story.
1: Uh, you know, you going away after retirement, I didn't know you went to writing school. I mean, yep, that, you yep. know, um, Ken Tanner and I talked. I didn't realize his background, you know, and some of the, you know, Brett Williams and all these other people and that I've talked to, not just with Chesterfield, but around Richmond and in more. Uh, you know, I got a bunch of. I got Dennis Rubin on the on the hook to do one. That's going to be an interesting yes. one. You know, hearing here some of the other stories. You know, you and I worked together for I don't know at the same station on the same shift for two or three years. I was at MedFlight, and I think right. you were at 14 for a couple of years, and so we knew each other. With the rest of our 30-ish years of the career, we were kind of apart, and we'd cross paths, I don't know, maybe at a Christmas party or a, a party where cans of beer might have gotten tossed over a roof at somebody's house. I've heard house. that story. I can't, it can't be proved. <laughs> yeah, you know, the teachers on the back porch and the firemen on the front porch, and we can't let them two together. It's no, very bad.
0: No, that doesn't work.
1: Uh, so, but, I mean, it's interesting hearing those other stories and the, the life experiences going into it, and it's it's interesting the perspective. That's, That's why I, I think
0: about. a lot of people are liking your podcast. It's a blending of what was and what is, and it brings the weave, the fabric of what we did as we get older. It's what I call you know, a log of memory, and when you're sitting around on your own or if you're off somewhere, you can get to burn the log of memory, and it warms your insides in remembrance of people and things that you did, and it's a very positive impact. So what you're doing, I hold in high regard. I think this is an excellent, opportunity on many levels for you, for the people that sit on this side, for the people that listen. Hopefully everyone's going, oh yeah, I remember that. Because what happens when you get a collective group, you start telling the story, and then the story takes on a life of its own. One guy will remember this part, another guy will remember that. Oh yeah, I forgot all about that. By the time it's done, you've created this tremendous story which will carry over, because our lives do separate, yep. and it's these stories that keep us Together,
1: well, and that's uh, yeah, that's why I got got started. And uh, you know, I keep looking back, and you know, the people who I can't do this with anymore—the Frank Marseille's the yes, um, Dave, Creasy, Dave Creasy, Dave Creasy the you know Wayne Tunstall, his name coming up here, man, man, you want to talk about some stories? You want to get Chief Wayne super bait in here, and we'll uh, <laughs>
0: super <laughs> Boss Hog, Boss Hog, yeah. and
1: uh, we we could kill a couple of these memory cards on this. Recorder. And that's why
0: this is important too, because they stay alive. Yeah. You know, you bring them up, you talk about them, and they live on. You know, again, all the great cliches—they're all applicable.
1: They're all true. Yeah. You, this is a good thing. Well, cool. Well, let's talk more about the book because uh, the, book. the the book uh, it well, came out. Well, thank you for that. It came out when did when did Fire Thieves? When was that first published?
0: Uh, Two thousand and sixteen. Again, uh, I was writing, and then uh, I was staying to the curricula of the school. And then you know Matthew had his, uh, my son had a wreck, he passed away and uh, you can fall into a, a, a well of despair and there's far, t- I can name far too many guys who have lost children a- and you have to find something of value and, and it's more than that because there's not a person listening who has not lost someone prematurely. For me it happened to be my son but it could be a wife, a daughter, your friend, your mentor. And then it's what you do with that. So the writing actually became a life preserver for me. And I woke up one day and I I don't have an answer for you. I just sat down and started writing. I mean, I was totally immersed in writing this book. I had a lot of good people, a lot of ideas and and it's right.
1: not, I mean, you say it's a work of fiction, but the interesting part is I'd been in the fire marshal's office a while and you called me one day, you'd already been retired and I was in the fire marshal. Hey, I need, I need some background. I'm writing this book. Let me tell you this story.
0: Well, you changed part of the book because and I had the wrong <laughs> weapon for the fire <laughs> marshals. I, damn it. I have to go back and change no, everything.
1: <laughs> but it was, it was kind of fun. It was, uh, it I remember sitting and watching the Yankees. I think they lost. I think the Yankees were in the World Series and I think they lost. Not that I'm poking at a Yankees fan. but ah,
0: That's baseball. <laughs> I don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> the, uh, and literally on a napkin, you drew out all these characters and these connections <laughs> to people. I'm like, this is just neat. Watching the process. And, uh,
0: but I, uh, I, I, as, as I travel about like you and I meet with groups, I've been to like 25 states, uh, Canada, the United States. I've uh, virtually talked with people in Belgium, Australia, and everywhere about the book. And I will tell people the same story that, you know, people can be spiritual in their own way. You define your God any way you wish. But I tell people, I feel like Matthew sits on my shoulder because he was an organ donor times six. Mm. And so I have perpetuated his legacy and I've donated all the funds for the book to, to charity. And then I got picked up by an agent out of California. And then I got picked up by an editor and one thing led to another and I had, had to rewrite it over and over again to get it to a level that it was of merit. I succeeded, uh, thanks to all these people that had helped me, and the book took on a life of its own, and it's done well enough that of all the people that we could name, Craig Vaughn, Catfish, (laughs) who retired and was driving uh, people from Hollywood around, it could be just people that work the cameras yeah, or producers. movies the movie set movie transportation people, guy, mm-hmm. yeah, so ever the entrepreneur said, "Hey, catfish, and Bobby Foster. I said, "Here's a couple books, man. If ever you run it to someone you think you can give this to give it to them, not expecting much. Well, they did, and a couple of years later, I got hooked up with a man named Jeffrey Lampert, who's worked with Neil Simon and Kevin Costner, and he was the producer for Harriet Tubman. He got in touch with me, he liked the book, he had me down on the set. Blah blah blah, and he said, "You got a screenplay for this?" And I said, well, "I'm not write screenplay." <laughs> he says, "Well, try it." So I just finished, the, not too long ago, after two years, and um, signed an option with him in Hollywood, and they're looking to try to turn this uh, book into a movie. Fire
1: Thieves, the movie. I I don't want to jinx it, but yeah, that is correct. Uh-huh. We won't tell anybody, so we won't yeah yeah have, don't, we don't no don't one tell don't
0: everyone listening to this that that. Yeah. Robbie just made that
1: up. That would be that would be cool to see um because I I think I, you know, there's a number of characters in your book that <laughs> you Well, know, you guys, yeah,
0: Chief Dobbins <laughs> is one of them that uh
1: Chief Robbie Dobbins that uh are similar to that's right. some people that we used to work with back back in the day yeah, but
0: yep. uh Yeah, when it got to the level of needing a lawyer and they read over everything, he said well, you got to change all your friends' names. I said, "Why?" They said, "Well, that's why they say to protect the innocent he said <laughs> if, if these guys were the women in there their spouses they get divorced something ugly they're going to come back and say i never gave permission and they're going to sue you <laughs> so that's why you see in books and movies all the names or anything this thing
1: is a work of fiction that's, that's right any yeah. similarity to persons living or...
0: lawyers and insurance agents rule the earth
1: so is there another book in the works is uh, yeah, i think the last yes. book kind of ended uh i won't give the ending away um, no you can't give it away it, but it was, it kind of solved some things and left some things dangling.
0: Yes, I am uh, working now on one that's called 13 divided by 1. Always looking for, you know, these cool hook names, but uh, this one will have to do with MS13 and 1% or Bike Groups battling it out. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> for the meth trade uh, right here, again, it'll be in, in the local area, Petersburg, Dinwiddie. And, Chatter- and the like chatterton chatterton
1: county chatterton county virginia Where, which has had no record no similarity to somebody i
0: heard there's a county called chesterfield yeah. and but I'm, I'm not sure of that
1: cool well good luck with the a the the screenplay we'll and uh, it's already success
0: it's 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 been fun
1: when uh when you get to walk that red carpet maybe i'll be sitting on the sideline take a picture of you and you'll you'll say you knew chief I knew, dobbins i knew, there I, knew, he I, knew is. You, I knew you win
0: lieutenant Crosby. yeah it is <laughs> There's a bunch of guys
1: i'll go, I'll go find some pictures from days at fourteen and uh, <laughs> we'll sh- we'll share them with you guys
0: them. might blackmail me though i don 't know if i 'll tell you no
1: not me yeah no, no, no. I, I, all, I, all I would use it for is free movie tickets that was that would be all I would use it for done <laughs> so uh I kind of wrap wrap this up with uh two last questions um, you know how long were you in the department you you worked from eighty to
0: I only put in twenty three years because I bought back the two years. I did uh, the psych work for Department of Corrections. That gave me twenty five in VRS timing, S- yeah. I wanted to stay and plop like a bunch of guys, but uh, I was on the hot seat, and I had other interests, so I left after twenty five years. Right. So
1: twenty five years—I'll call it a successful career. You—you you survived a number of it was very successful uh, uh, of things. Oh, well, well, look uh, at the people you get to know. Yeah, yeah definitely successful. What? Uh, well, you get five minutes with a recruit school today. Um, you know, what, what kind of advice do you think you would give them to? based on your history and experience to, to help well, them be were, successful. In,
0: in your conversation with me, you pretty much hit it on already. Again, it's about applying yourself, taking it serious, not being complacent, and following someone who knows the ropes and not the class clown, so to speak, or the funny guy, because that's not going to work. Uh, recruits, they need to... Pay attention because times are changing. Another thing, too, with technology, it's changing much faster than when we were on the job. So they have to be more yeah, no Yeah,
1: no more staffing with a three-ring notebook and oh. pencil. Thank you. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, cool. Well, anything else you want to share? Um, you know, uh, uh, you know. congratulations on the book. I thought it was oh, a great book. I, got, I, I If I hadn't been in the process of moving, I'd have had it here and we'd get a picture of us with it because <laughs> you signed it back several years ago oh, when thanks. I first got it and uh, but it's packed away somewhere and uh,
0: no it's me that uh, is thanking you I think I speak for a lot of people again we touched on it here the opportunity to speak and be reminded of not only what we were but what we still are and in getting the stories of others, what we will be that's the that's blend of all three a- and you've done that well and I really like everyone else how could you not appreciate the opportunity to be here and to reminisce a little bit and to joke some or to talk a little bit of seriousness, and I am the one who's humbled and honored at, at the chance to be here, so thank you, but next time, I I will take the food out of my backpack
1: first, <laughs> which is what we okay. didn't touch. All right, go up. ahead, go ahead. No, we can't no, leave okay, you hanging okay. there. Okay. We'll leave li- leave we story. will end on this. We will end on this, yeah. Okay,
0: I go, I get this opportunity <laughs> to go climb Mount Rainier with uh, Robbie Dawson, Bobby Burnett, and John Crosby. Now I'd never mountain climbed or anything, but I was in reasonably good shape back then. So we go out there and we're hiking and we're doing the dreaded <laughs> switchbacks and at the end of the day, we'd have to decide what we wanna eat and these three guys were so kind. Oh, let's, let's have the uh, uh, chicken stew from my pack or no, no, let's have the pancakes. I've got that in my bag and I said to myself, these, these are the most polite guys I've ever seen. Three days later, my pack is still full and They're, heavy, and seventy-five yeah. pounds. And these polite guys are laughing at me. So you talk about a lesson learned. Thank you, Robbie. Well, it's John. Well,
1: you know, you have rookies in every profession, even in the mountain climbing profession. Yeah, even though so. I was
0: the oldest one there. I was the rookie, no doubt.
1: But that yeah. that was great. That was a good time. Yeah.
0: But uh, again, thank you for this, and uh, I can't wait to. Listen to all your podcasts, man. Jam on.
1: Cool. Well, uh, last question for you then. If anybody wants to find the book, if there's that few people that are out there that don't know how to get a hold of it, where uh, can you get it on Amazon or what?
0: Yes, yeah, so I'm an Amazon Kindle kind of guy. Uh, I was offered a contract, but I uh, chose to self-publish because I could keep control. And since I I didn't do it to make money, I covered my costs. I did it to donate. I was able to keep the majority of the funds uh, to give to charity, but... Amazon Kindle. If you're on the Outer Banks, you can go to any bookstore down there because I'm in all the uh, bookstores down cool. there.
1: So uh, be sure and go check it out. Amazon uh, Fire Thieves by Michael Brigati. Captain Mike Brigati. Thank you, Robbie. Thanks for coming out. Great fun, man. Good, good, Good reliving some of those stories. Thanks. Thanks, again for listening to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. If you've got an idea or a suggested guest that you'd like to hear from, Make sure you drop me a note at firehouselogbook at gmail.com. And make sure you follow along on Facebook and search at FD Logbook or look for the Firehouse Logbook podcast on Facebook so you'll see when new episodes are coming out and get to see some pictures of some of the guests as well. Also, make sure you subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you use and give us a rating and leave a review. Until next time. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Mike Brigatti.